podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. Occasionally in sport you hear the term late bloomer. Doesn't happen very often now in motorsport with youngsters getting into karting and riding motorbikes before many of them even hit double figures. Troy Bayliss fell in love with bike racing in his pre-high school years as a junior. He drifted away as a teen but came back in his 20s and went on to become a triple world champion. I was brought up on a wheat farm out west and like many kids out there you're either on horses or bikes and my sister was on horses and I was on bikes and um, basically we, I went through the, the ranks of doing a little bit of junior motocross and dirt track and, but it sort of finished like as I was um, you know, around 14 or 15 as we moved back to this side of the, the country and um, it sort of left me for a little while but it was always inside, inside me and every now and then I'd see, see bikes and it'd make me think about them but I had no no really idea that I was going to become involved in road racing at all until um, I passed the shop one day on my bicycle out training and seen a Kawasaki 750 H1 in the window and I just went home and got a loan and went and bought it. You were inspired though, you had been down I think for memory to, I think you'd watched the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix at Eastern Creek and you'd thought a bit about getting back into it again, but you had to borrow a bit of money for that bike, is that right? Tell me that story. It was $9,999. Yeah, I bought that bike and then basically straight away a few of my mates that had bikes down in Taree said they were going down to the down to watch the um, Grand Prix down at Eastern Creek and we went down and like really roughed it out in the out in the parking lot and I even got involved with like you know it was different back then there was drag races in the night and you know not organised it was just like the boys on their bikes and I couldn't believe that um, I was doing that but when I went over and watched the guys I, I watched them riding around and and I just thought to myself, wow, that, that'd be a cool job and I think I could ride pretty fast. I'm going to give that a go. So come back a step for me. Tell me about your, your very first bike. Am I right in saying that it was a Honda Z50? Exactly. Whatever, whatever happened to that? Have you tracked it down? And No, nah, the thing was so, so beaten up by the time <laughs> my dad or mum sold it. Um, I just remember everything was broken on it, the lights and blinkers and the handlebars were all pushed in. Like, they're a cool bike. I see them around now. They're worth a lot of money. It's crazy. Most people, they get addicted to it once they, they get started. In that period where it drifted away from you, you said it was always still in your mind that you enjoyed the whole notion of racing, but, but it was only that moment when you saw the, the Kawasaki that you really kind of triggered things again, or what happened? Yeah, it was, but um, when, when, as soon as I was old enough, I actually did buy a, a Yamaha TT250 trail bike just so I could get around on. Like That was um, like my first really experience on the road, but you know, I used to ride it even ride that thing it was only a 250 like trial bike but I used to ride it down the Newcastle sometimes to go to tech <laughs> weird but yeah um, that was that was actually the start of like getting back on on the road I'm told correct me if I'm wrong here I'm told a local police officer took an interest in you and, and kind of warned you about you know being well behaved on the road and things like that is that true? yeah pretty much and um, you know they give me a little bit of a revving but uh, I only had the bike on the road like the the 750 for a matter of months before I realized that you know I was probably gonna hurt myself or or get locked up and um, and that was it we took the 
took the fairings off and put a set of fiberglass fairings on it and headed on down to uh, Oran Park. It was the first ever ride we did. So what did you decide to do? Was it a case of, okay, I'm a... You were working as a spray painter, I think, back then. Was it, let's just get a van and we'll have a crack at this for a bit of fun? What was the approach? Um, Straight away, it was like, go and have a bit of fun. Um, But, yeah, we used um, Kim's dad's van and we went went down to uh, Oran Park and straight away I realised... I went down there and and I was going okay, but I realised, man, but this is... I'm in the wrong place you know like if I want to do this properly I need to get a 250 because that's where all the guys are learning and um, that's where the racing seemed to be really good so I did the race there at Oran Park and then we went and I went and traded in on a KR1 S250 and just because that was the right way to go and then that was that was the start of it we started doing a few a few of the Australian championship rounds and then the following year we went and did all of them and yeah that was it completely completely hooked and addicted by then but I was also 22 probably then I think so it was a, a late starter, um, and I, it's really weird how it all works out. Like we've got Ollie riding now, and he's only just turned fourteen. He had he's had his first full year in the Australian Championship, and uh, I look at all the young guys now, and I, saw, I seem to think like it would have been good if I started that young. But honestly, I think your career is, you know, it doesn't. I, it's not the right thing to be starting at 22, but I'd learned everything and I'd had all the background. It was all there. It just needed kicking off. One thing that sticks in my mind is you getting a wild card ride at the 1997 Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. I think for memory with the Dutch team on a Suzuki, mm-hmm. a 250 that wasn't quite the equal of the front running guys, was it? That was a big moment and I can... You know, I even recall my colleague Mark Osler encouraging people to, to stand up and get behind you and cheer you for what you were doing on this machine. It was... It was crazy how that worked out because that was in, yeah, in 97. It was on the Ari Molnar Suzuki, the Dutch guys, and uh, they were an incredible good bunch of guys and we had the best weekend. Like, it all started off weird for them because um, their rider was uh, sick or injured, I can't remember now to tell you the truth, and uh, they were looking for a rider. Uh, Gary Flood, um, who was doing the suspension on uh, Gavin Cosway's bike at the time that I was riding, put my name forward and... They actually, in the end, they gave me a shot, but they were worried because I had no, you know, I was coming from Australian Superbikes at the time. I was riding the NZ Air Freight bike yep. of Peter Goddard and Phil Tayton. And a 250 Grand Prix bike yeah. is a different machine. They were, they were worried that I had no, you know, two-stroke experience, but I didn't even think about that because I'd ridden a 250 production bike and that was, you know, I said, yeah, I've ridden a 250 before. <laughs> um, and they were just all on a downer and half of them were sick as well. I'm sure they had some food poisoning going around. And anyway, I hopped on the bike and straight away, I really liked the bike and straight up like I, I was doing good and I came in and they were all excited and then I just I just sort of roller coasted and snowballed and just, the weekend just got better and better and uh, ended up being a great race and honestly the bike was a bit slower but it was one of the best handling bikes that I'd ever ridden and um, yeah and I remember back then uh, Barry Sheen and Bill Woods uh, were doing some commentating there and I, I got really good rap out of it and it it really made people sort of stand up and take notice. You were up against guys like Ralph Waldman, uh, Max Biaggi, Olivia Jack, and as, as you say, your Caparossi, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, crazy. yeah. I mean, I mean, famous names in that scene at the at the time. So the result ultimately was a sixth, but but you you nearly got a podium, mate, didn't you? Just to, yeah, as you come yeah. onto the front straight, like every lap, I was. Um, 
at one stage I was in second in the early laps and then eventually Biaggi and Warman they sort of broke away and then there was a big battle for um, the next four or five of us guys but so many times I'd just get passed down the straight and I was a bit heavy for a 250 as well I was like 67 or 68 kilos and um, but the bike handled so good and I, and I knew you know Phillip Island pretty good even back then and uh, I was just like carving them up on this thing <laughs> and it was such a good feeling the bike was just working so well did it open doors for you? This was the key moment in terms of what I think ultimately took you yeah. to the UK, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was now international teams were noticing what Troy Bayless was capable yeah, of. Yeah, without a doubt. And honestly, um, there were a lot of people interested. And then we found out, like, right back, even back then in 97, that there was opportunities. There was even a couple of 500 opportunities. But, like, we had to bring money to the team. And like we didn't know, even know anyone that had money. <laughs> so, um, and we had no idea on how to chase money because basically we were country bumpkins. And uh, that was the end of that. And it was only the following week we had a, a phone call from uh, the UK with Daryl, who had a private um, Ducati team over there. And it was a pretty easy, it was a pretty easy uh, decision for us. We had Mitchell and Abby were very young, um, but he said, okay. I'll give you £20,000, we'll give you a house to live in, give you a car, pay you like these win bonuses, and we went, well, let's go. That was that. And did you think, this is a two-year plan, we'll give it two years and see what happens? Did you just roll the dice and let's go and experience this? That, that was it. We're going to like do the best we could do, but basically treat it as a, as a working holiday. And, um, but I thought I was going to go there and be competitive straight up. Um, but yeah, when, you know, when we got there, we realised that the guys were—they were really fast, and and they had some really different sorts of tracks. You know, some similar to the Australian style, but a lot of them were like really, really got some character. And some of the tracks we went to were quite dangerous as well. And a long story short, I had 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 enough crashes and bike problems, um, but I did manage to win a couple of races in the first year, and that got you know Daryl keen to keep us on board and. We really, um, even David Tardofsky came down because we were struggling that much with the bikes like playing up. He came to Knock Hill to see what was going on. And the following year, we had like um, proper RS bikes and had Neil Hodson as a teammate. And we battled really hard all year. And we ended up coming out like winning the, winning the British Superbike Championship. So it was pretty cool. And the only other Aussie to do that was Wayne Gardner at the time. So I felt pretty special. You should do, mate. It's a great achievement. Was that the first... You know, going back to that period, was that the first time you ever had ridden a, a Ducati? And was it the 996 that, that you've got sort of really fond memories of from that period? Yeah, it was the first time um, that I'd ridden Ducati. And I have to say that before then, just before I rode the Team Kawasaki bike in 96, I was offered a, a job with um, with the guys here, Fraser's, to ride the Superbike. But I'd already signed a deal to ride a, a 600. So it was like... I should have been on Ducatis even before, you know what I mean? And it, was, and it, it really hurt. But finally, when, when I got to ride the bikes, I, I loved the Ducatis and I was so happy to be on them. I think I recall reading an article somewhere that you described it a bit, if I've got this right, a bit like a... Like a yeah, no, was it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the words I used. Um, yeah, the British Superbikes, they were pretty good bikes. But yeah, the first time I rode the bike, I think, was at Mallory Park. And um, yeah, you know, new track and new bike and new team and everything. It was freezing cold. It was probably February over there and it was bleak as hell. But yeah, the team were great. We based ourselves like we were only like a mile away from the race team. Made some really good friends that we still have over there. And um, yeah, it was just on the outskirts of Coventry. Was this a bit of a surreal moment as well? Because here's a 
a spray painter from New South Wales with his young wife and kids in the UK and now you're the British Superbike champion and I would imagine the phone's ringing even more about potential opportunities firstly in the United States and then ultimately in Europe. Yeah, well it's funny because when we went over there uh, it was the same time as all mad cows happening and we were so frightened <laughs> that we were going to get mad cow. I'm not joking. And when we, we met some of the, the people that we became good friends with, like we went around to their farm and we were having like a lunch and they just laughed their heads off and we said, oh, we're not eating any meat. <laughs> but yeah, like when, when, when I won the championship in 99, Carl Fogarty was there and he was presenting me the trophy. And like by that stage, I, you, know, you know, I knew I was fast and inside myself as he was like handing me that trophy, I was, I was thinking, I'm having your bike. You know, I'm going to be there one day. Um, but Daryl, the, the team owner, and basically was my manager as well, a uh, great friend of ours now, he's, he'd always had plans to go to World Superbike, um, but it wasn't going his way right at that time. He said, Troy, I'm, I'm, I want to go to World Superbike, but it's just not working out just yet. And, and Ducati offered me a job in America to do the AMA. He said, you go and do that, and we'll see you know, the following year where I end up. And um, so off we went to, to the USA and we're like that was just basically, a, I thought it would be there for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, that all got cut short when Carl had his crash at, at Phillip Island and I got the call to come and hop on the bike and then basically the rest is history. Carl Fogarty, legend of the game, yeah. presenting you with the trophy, as you said. Sadly, he gets injured. That's just what happens in the game of motorcycle racing, but it opened the door, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And there's so many stories in between all of that when we're in the US and, like, when you, when you pack up your family and you take off and go overseas and then, then you're in England, then you're in Italy and then we're moving to the USA, like, all the dramas and stuff we had to do for visas and stuff, <laughs> like, it kept us on our toes and Kim was you know, where the kids were so young and there was plenty going on. And while I was getting shipped around there, going and riding in Italy, Kim was trying to pack up our stuff in the US. It was like a, it was, it was a nightmare there for a while mm. and we didn't know where to go. And then we went back to live in the UK for a while until we realised that, okay, we're going to be staying in World Superbikes. When you realised that, yeah. had you already started to learn Italian? Because you can speak Italian, I think, can't you? I mean, it I'm kind of becomes a necessary thing when you're working with your caddy. Yeah, I'm like a four-year-old. Um, four-year-olds get what they want, though, <laughs> so I must be saying the right stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I love working for them guys. I had so much, such a good time, and uh, you know, I was lucky to work for possibly the best team in the world mm. and, and a great bunch of guys. And right when you ride for like the factory Ducati team, it automatically brings attention and it brings like a lot of supporters. It doesn't matter where you go in Italy. They love, you know, they love Ferrari and they love Ducati. And if you happen to be riding one of them for them, that means they're going to love you too. Did they teach you the language or did you go out and study it or it just become a necessary thing because you were oh, based in Europe? It was just learnt through, because we didn't live in Italy, we lived down in, uh, in Monaco eventually, but... There's, there's everyone there, but the general language is English. And so my, all my Italian was learnt, like, around the mechanics. So it was always the bad words first. And then, like, uh, you know, every night at dinner would be, like, it would be going to and throw. And I was put in so many situations early on where I'm around so many people and I didn't really speak the language. Mm-hmm. So it, it can be difficult and you can either handle that or you can't. And, um, yeah, I managed to be able to be fine with it and, and get by. You 
race some good bikes. We are talking before about the, the brief stint of the United States and things like that, and we discussed briefly the 996. I'm told your favourite Ducati is the 998 of 2002. Is, is that correct? Is that your favourite race bike? Why, if it is? Um, well, I love them all, but um, 2002 was a, the 998 was definitely a great bike, but also the 999. I like the 999 so much because Ducati had the spend so much money on it to make it competitive because when I rode the 998 it was a 1000cc the the Japanese bikes were 750 because they were like four cylinders um, but when, when all the Japanese bikes started running the 1000ccs we, had, we were still running the 1000 like the 999 but Ducati had the it was basically like a mini GP bike that is to make the thing competitive wow. um, yeah so it's a like really special bike the 999 you kept I'm told the 998 the 999 and the 1098 championship winning bikes was that a hard thing because Barry Sheen different era admittedly uh, was able to keep some of his bikes that they were you know Suzuki's Japanese winning bikes and things but the the Japanese engineers and, and management weren't very keen on handing them over, mate. They didn't like that, that thought. Yeah, I think, like, um, I've heard lots of stories about the Japanese, like, crushing a lot of the bikes, um, which I find crazy, really. Yeah. Uh, the Italians, though, no, they, the bikes get around. Um, I'm so happy to have the bikes here at home. Uh, you know, I walk past them and just, it feels like another lifetime ago, but they're, they're beautiful things and, and they've got a nice home here and it's so, it's so nice to have them. But the funny story with the, with the first one from 2001 was Ducati wanted me to run number... Because basically all my bikes, they... In my contract, like when they make a replica bike, yep. like I take the replica, so I have all the replicas, number, you know, number 21 of oh, nice. blah, blah, blah and all this sort of stuff. But the race bikes, when, when they said, oh, okay, we want you to run number one in 2002... And I asked my bike. They said, "I said I'll run. I'll run number one if if I can have the bike. Otherwise, I'm running 21." So that was that bike. And then <laughs> I've got the other two here as well. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about that because uh, in in numbers terms, I think you ran 32 mm-hmm. in the British Championship, yep. 12 during your, your stint in MotoGP. Yep. But everyone automatically thinks of 21 from your time in, in World Superbikes yeah, and the, su- the successes there. Is there a story there? Is there a backstory to 21? Why did you yeah, have that? There is. Um, when I arrived at Sugo, the first, um, the first time I rode the factory bike, well, it was only like a week before when David called me and said, Troy, you're coming to Sugo. Like, <laughs> you know, after Carl's crash, I didn't have a say in it. He said, you're coming to Sugo. Righto. So I arrived there. And, um, but before then, he said, what number do you want to run? And I said, I don't care. And he said, okay, 21. <laughs> and that's it? That's it. Really? David was number 21. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, we're talking about a guy by the name of David Tardozzi who is famous in Ducati terms and, yeah. and you know. David won the first ever World Superbike race. Mm. Yeah. Uh, on a Bermuda, though, back in the day. Uh, yeah, incredible guy. He was very fiery. Uh, he certainly calmed over the years. But yeah, I used to see him on the rev limiter like so much. He was like a he's like a Jack Russell. He wasn't scared of anyone. <laughs> His influence in the the bikes and the race team and everything was just uh, you know phenomenal. He was um, an incredible incredible team manager, and he knew how to get the best out of out of the riders. That's for sure. This is Greg Rust, and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Troy Bayless in just a few moments. 
In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know. Tim Schenken was something of an Australian driving pioneer when he hopped on a boat to England in the 1960s to follow his dream of becoming a Formula One driver. I used to go through the parts bin, the rubbish bin at, um, at the chequered flag and get the old rose joints and bits and pieces and whatever and tidy them all up and put them onto this uh, Lotus, uh, Lotus 22. But I just lived for motor racing and, you know, I had a one-bedroom apartment uh, with four of us uh, were living there, mattresses on the floor, but, I mean, that was only to sleep because the rest of the time it was full-on uh, motor racing. Listen to the full interview with Australian Motorsport Hall of Famer Tim Schenken here on Rusty's Garage. Doeys. The act of spinning the rear wheels of a car while turning in a tight circle mimicking the shape of a donut, often used by racing drivers to celebrate victory, or unsuccessfully used by adolescent men to impress their female counterparts. Some fantastic battles during your career with the likes of Colin Edwards, for example. Who, who's the toughest rival? Was it was it him? I have to say, you know, I, I had my time in GP as well, and there's a lot of fantastic riders there. But I'm I'm known for my Superbike days, and yeah, I, like there's plenty of plenty of fast and hard guys out there. But I did have so many battles with Colin that I'd say most people would agree that definitely Colin and myself, he was the man I had to try and. He was there week in, week out, and always really hard to beat. And we had a like a pretty good relationship, considering we we're always banging ourselves around on the bikes. But after all them years, we never, we never, we rode so close together. Same with Harger as well. But we never, we never were involved in a crash together. So not a bad word. Not a bad word. Amazing. There are chapters, as you said before, in in, uh, in MotoGP for you. If memory serves me correctly, a stint with Cito Pons on the Honda, and then you won that season-ending round at uh, at Valencia the same year that Nicky Hayden, the late mm-hmm. Nicky Hayden, went went on to win the title. What was that MotoGP bike like to ride? It was. It was. The bike was great. Uh, Loris and I developed the bike in two thousand and two thousand and three and four. Uh, and then I found myself back on basically that bike, which had, but the development had continued. And but you know you go to some tracks like Valencia, even on the bikes in 2003 and four, I, I had podiums there. So for some reason, I was always pretty fast at Valencia. And when this situation arose, which was quite funny, uh, well not funny, it was bad for Sete because he injured his shoulder. Yes. But when the guys asked me to come come to Valencia and ride the bike, it was going to be the the final race of the 1000 cc bikes before they went back to the 800s they were putting across the line that you know this is a good idea because it's the last you know the last time the bike will get ridden it's the bike that you and loris developed and i said i'm interested but i there's no way i'll do it unless i can bring my superbike crew to the to work on it with me for that weekend Uh, well a lot of the mechanics i knew already but i wanted ernesto there david and parlo so so we got together and uh, went backwards and forwards a little while. Eventually, uh, Claudio Dominicali basically said, OK, it's going to happen. So we went along there and I hopped on the bike and was fast straight away again. And uh, it was on Bridgestones, which I'd been on Pirelli's or, um, all year. And, but I felt great on the bike and it was crazy. Um, I ended up qualifying second to Valentino and everything was going so good. And I went out in the warm-up that morning and... I was probably back in about 11th and I came in a little bit flustered and um, I was worried about like how the back was working and David said, don't worry, like, you know, we use, 
we could have put a better tyre in for the warm-up, but you put the same tyre in you're going to use as a, in the race. And the lights went green and off I went. Basically controlled the whole race and I had Loris behind me for most of the way towards the end. And um, But with four laps to go, I knew that if he had been able to like actually pass me, he would have. But he was he was doing everything he could. But I, I had the speed that day, and I just watched the lap board. And the last four laps felt like I was in cruise mode. Amazing! But yeah. did, how special? Where does that rank for you in in terms of the career success? It felt like a mini world championship wow. uh, to win, like in 2006 on the superbike, and then go there. Mm-hmm. I just put 2006 down as definitely my best year. The affinity with Ducati, we talked about that before. I mean, you'll hate me saying this, but you're like a demigod there, mate. You're part of the family. Why did it all work so well? Is it bikes, people, culture? Is it all of those things? It's just, it's a really hard one. Um, first, you have, like, you know, you've got to get the results. So, like I said, we had good bikes. I was in my prime, riding really well. I got, I'm pretty easy to get along with normally. Um, and we, we hit it off with the team. Uh, they were a great bunch of guys. Uh, every Sunday night, there would always be like beer, pasta and pizza. Uh, <laughs> up until then, it's like dead set serious, but Sunday night, we'd have a good time and all get together. And we'd, we'd get together during the, the week too, or the racing, but it, of course, it was just full on. It was all about the, you know, about the win, like we're going to go and get the win. You guys are the heroes for me with what you do on on these bikes. So it's a game that that comes with a, a lot of risk. You've had your injuries too. I mean, the crash at Donington is is one that comes yeah. to mind. But you you might argue that you've been luckier than a, a lot of others. But I mean, that's the the one that I think about. Yeah, definitely. Um, what you do? You lost your finger and lost my finger and done a little bit of man damage. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all good though. <laughs> it's all goodish. Um, what do you say? Split an atom, you could say. Okay. Um, but yeah, basically every year you'll be breaking something like you'd crack a bone in your hand or your wrist or you know so many little little things and vertebrae and stuff but but when I look at how I got out of it like my body's like in really good shape and to stop in 2008 as a champ um, and have your body intact was was special but it comes with um, how do I explain it it was I felt like I needed to retire at the end of 2008 and it was because I was at the top of my game. I was 38 or 39, but also Mitchell and Abby were, uh, Mitchell was 14. Mm -hmm. So, and we're living in Monaco and it just seemed like we wanted to get the kids, everything was adding up. Like it was a good time to come home with the kids as well. Mm -hmm. We wanted them to sort of get brought up like a bit more Australia. Australia. Uh, It's a bit weird over there. It's Mm -hmm. good to be there, but I don't think it's good long term. I don't think anyway. Um, So we're back here. That's that, and um, the body's in good shape. And but so hard after all them years away, and then you come home, and you're so used to being racing week in, week out, and maybe the the spotlight. I don't know about the spotlight, but the winning or, or the the competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went down to see the team at Phillip Island for the first round of the World Superbikes, I was like like so depressed I, I couldn't I could hardly even go into the box and speak to the guys I just felt so wrong to be, even be there mm. and that felt, I felt like that for years but I sort of you know I, I test used to go back and test the bikes and and do a bit of work with the guys and always was always thinking no I should be back there racing mm. um, but eventually I've sort of got over that it, it had been such a massive chunk of your adult life that's why and then all of a sudden you you stop that so how difficult is that that whole 
thing been? You briefly came back in 2015 and did the, you know, a, yeah. a cameo appearance kind of thing, but yeah. I, I sort of sensed in you that you loved it so much. It's, it must have been enormously hard to, to give it up. Yeah, I was terrible, so hard to, to give it up, but also by the end of 2008, I think it comes in cycles and, like, it was, like, 10 or 12 years of racing every year mm. and, like, it, it gets to you a little bit towards the end, but then, you know, you have some time off and you feel fresh and I might have just needed one year off. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, when I came back and did that ride in 2015, that was just completely out of the blue. Um, David... Davida Guliano was injured yes. and it was just before they come to Phillip Island I just rang Ernesto up and I wasn't feared or anything I said Ernesto I'm riding that bike <laughs> he said he said are you sure are you sure you want to do that I said yeah I'm coming down I'm going to have a ride we'll just have some fun um, <laughs> it was pretty funny uh, and that was that I did okay but honestly didn't really take it too seriously and decided to go and do the next round and did better didn't better in Thailand but I always used to I never liked riding in the heat anyway and after riding over there in Thailand in the heat I was like oh, this is not a good idea okay the fitness side of things for you in you know I can always remember you enjoying your cycling and and um, did that come naturally to you did you did you have to work at that or did you did you take to the fitness side of things you know in the same manner you did your racing yeah it just come naturally because I honestly when you've got a job like that we're living in, a, in an apartment. That was, you know, that's my job. So the training part of it was easy. Yeah. Like basically, I'd have my training done by lunch, come and have some lunch with Kim, and then we were just a normal family for the rest of the afternoon. And being over where we were, like living in Monaco, most of the races were in Europe. Well, I didn't need to go to the races until like Thursday most of the time. And like, so it was only like 12 races a year or so. And it was like an office job. Amazing. It was, it was a great job. And you don't appreciate that until until you've had it and then you look back on it and sometimes you'll think oh I was a bit snotty nose there or whatever but yeah it's definitely definitely a great job the Desmo Sport team you mentioned before um, is something that keeps you very busy at the moment and so does the motorcycle shows here in Australia and so these are ways you've stayed very much involved in the industry even though you're not racing on a, on a full-time basis at yeah. world championship level anymore yeah um, with the motorcycle shows it's been really good because everybody's always known me as like just Ducati yes. but now like to be involved with with all of the guys here in Australia all the importers and everything and all the accessory guys um, it's just it's, it's really nice to be involved Kim and Mark Peterson like Honestly, my name's behind it, but they're the they're the drivers of it. Mark's got so much experience, and now Kim, like Kim's, really got a, a thumb on it now too, and she enjoys it, and uh, it's really good. The the Desmond Sport team, uh, it's a good thing because I'm back in the Australian Superbikes, where 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 I started, yes. and I love going there. Of course, having Ollie there racing now too makes sense to to be there um with a team so it sort of just happens easy now yeah. uh so i've been enjoying that and it's, it's good to be back and i think the championship's probably the best it's ever been right now some great things in the pipeline i think mm. for it as well it's, it's really rebounded um you know, there's some very memorable chapters of that australian championship and yes it's gone through some lulls but it's nice to see it coming back the way that it is you mentioned ollie 14 years of age, he's following in Dad's footsteps, or it looks like that, racing here in the Supersport 300 class. Yeah. Are you coach? Are you nervous, Dad? What, what are you like on the sidelines? I'm probably, it's really hard to watch. Is it? Yeah, I rang my mum like not long after, halfway through the year this year, and said, Mum, I'm so sorry. Really? I, I don't know what, I, you know, now I understand what I've put you guys all through. Yeah. Um, 
basically Ollie's been racing like a lot of his life he started off in carts and um and then switched from carts to bikes so he was like probably eight or nine when he was doing dirt track um and now you know the last two years we've started doing brought him up to speed up to speed here on the on the gold coast at extreme karting on the kart track Mm -hmm. so i was always riding 300 with him and um so different riding on the track with him because like we we ride hard but when you're on the track you don't you don't feel the the nervousness or anything like that but when you turn up to the asbk and i see him going around the track like with seven or eight guys like dyson for dyson for a win yeah. it's like it is stressful to watch i must say what about you are you comfortable just hanging out and involved in all of this or are there moments where you need to throw your leg over a bike and go and do something that that keeps the competitive stuff going over the years i've done which is probably been good we've done a lot of um dirt track riding which i did with ollie and uh a lot of other guys and sometimes i just go and do it myself you know just to go racing uh the troy Ballas classic which we've we've done has been good but yeah the good thing is it's kept me on the bike and uh i tested our bike the desmond sport bike i think about three or four weeks ago at morgan park yeah in queensland in queensland yeah um did uh did a good lap time I rode the bike at the Adelaide Motorsport Festival, which was fun. And here's a little surprise. I'll be riding our bike in the Australian Superbike Championship next year. That's phenomenal for the Australian Championship, mate. That's the whole... You're going to contest the whole championship? Yeah, I feel... um, I rode the... It's been a hard one. This year we had um, Callum Spriggs on the bike and he he sort of struggled a little. He's a great 600 rider. He, He crashed out and injured his shoulder. And that was the end of him for the year. I'm sure he's going to be back next year, I'd say, in the Superbike paddock as well. Uh, also, Corey Turner had a, had a spin on the bike, did very well up at uh, Morgan Park and then sort of struggled a little bit towards the end of the year. But, uh, you know, we want, we want to see the young guys on the bikes, but after I rode the bike and what I felt on the bike, it's a long story and hard to explain, but I feel the need that I, I need to ride... Um, Go and come back and try and get myself an Australian Superbike Championship. So life has come, in some respects, full circle for you. So you're going to contest it. You're back. You're going to contest the Australian Championship. As you and I talk in one of the spare rooms at your house, you've got the the bike set up. So you're going to get serious about training oh, and, yeah. and testing. Yeah, without a doubt, that's actually Ollie set up there. Is it? Yeah, he, he gets on the Zwift and uh, hooks up with all his mates on there. Um, yeah, fair dinkum. I'm actually I'm coming back. I'm going to be very serious and. Uh, that's that. How's Mama Bear? How's Kim about all that? Kim's not too bad about it. Like, it's a pretty... It's a, we've got Mitchell Cage fighting. He's 23. There's one sane one in the family, Abby. She's at university doing mathematics. Ollie's racing bikes. I'm at the track every weekend anyway. We may as well both be riding. What a great story, mate. Congratulations. It's been an honour to catch up with you. World Superbike Champion in 01, 06, 2008, obviously. 152 starts. 52 wins, 94 podiums and 26 poles. It is a very impressive strike rate, not to mention the British Championship and MotoGP race winner. And we've learnt in the podcast today that you're going to make a comeback. That's seriously cool. Yeah, it's seriously, um, you know, some people will, won't really get it. Um, but myself, I'm a racer and, you know, that's, that's what I need to do. I've... Uh I think it will be good for, for myself, it'll be good for our team, and I think it'll be good, also be good for the Australian Superbike Championship as well. 100%. Have a great season. All the best. Thanks, Greg. 
on the next episode of Rusty's Garage. I'm in New Zealand talking with V8 supercar driver and Kiwi legend Greg Murphy, who after all his years of racing has a trunk full of stories to tell. And uh, the passenger side of the car, which was the left-hand side of the car, the footwell and everything on the passenger side of the car was full of fuel. And so the, the fuel line from the back of the car somehow ruptured and was filling the car up with fuel. And um, as he did that, um, it ignited. And so the, the car was on fire. Peter Addison um, grabbed the fire extinguisher while everyone else stood back and watched because he was like, I'm not having this happen to this car. This is so important. So put the fire out, managed to fix, the pr- fix it. It didn't actually do too much damage because the, the fuel was burning, not the car. And uh, went on to, um, to race that weekend in, in the Toyota. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Drive safely.